0: I'm Dr Renee White and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of The Science of Motherhood. I'm your host, Dr Renee White. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before we jump into today's episode with amazing researcher, oh my goodness, and not just an amazing researcher, Australian female researcher with just a huge discovery. I'm so, so excited for you to listen to this chat. I just wanted to quickly mention that you may have seen that we have got three new faces at the Fill Your Cup Doula Village for those who are new to the podcast. Whilst I'm not in front of the microphone all the time interviewing phenomenal researchers and opinion leaders in the fields of pregnancy, postpartum and motherhood. I am the director of Fill Your Cup, which is Australia's first biochemist-led doula village in a previous life. I was a biochemist for all those playing at home and we have welcomed three new faces to our New South Wales team, Anna, Serena, and Joanne. So welcome, welcome, welcome. They are joining our New South Wales team who we already have the lovely Maz there. And for those who may be thinking, what is a doula village, Renee? What are you on about? Well, we are all postpartum doulas, so they are, I guess, non-medical support people who essentially come into the homes of sleep-deprived and overwhelmed mamas so they have an opportunity to rest and are nourished with our beautiful postpartum-specific um meals. So we're talking like hunted chicken stew, slow cooked pork tacos. We've got an amazing Mexican chicken soup, our tortilla soup. Oh my goodness. I make this for myself in huge batches and freeze away, particularly in winter. I have always got stock on hand. We have got some delicious snacks as part of our signature menu. So it's like our Apple and walnut loaf, our famous chalk goji lactation cookies. Oh, our gooey brownie mix, which has got like um oh it's got raspberries in it. But you would never know this unless you are watching our dollars make it for you in your house. It's full of sweet potato which is amazing because it's extra fiber, it's vitamin C and it keeps the mixture so moist. Like I always have to give my mamas a heads up. It's not going to be like a cake. Like it is just such a moist kind of slice. And I know you're probably sitting there saying, Renee, stop saying the word moist, but I'm not joking. It really, really is. (laughs) It's just so good. That with some yogurt on the side. Oh my goodness. I'm going to go make some now, I think. So, yes, that is what our doula village does. We essentially do three-hour weekly sessions with mums after the birth of their baby so they can actually really lean in and enjoy their postpartum experience. I hear so many times I have chats with mums who are engaging our services and they say, you know what, the first time around was really shit. Like, it just wasn't what i wanted and i was too busy running around the house or cooking meals and i was exhausted and sleep deprived you know my relationships failed with my partner because you know we were just so tired no one wanted to cook a meal so hard to like stay on top of laundry All those things a doula can help with. But I think one of the things that is really underestimated when it comes to working with a doula is more often than not, our mums always say at the end of their six or 10 week kind of offering, you know, I really hired you for the practicalities, you know, putting on a load of washing or making the meals or hanging out with my toddler so I could actually have some one-on-one time with my baby what they really underestimated was the level of emotional support a doula can bring. And it's just, you know, if you are a mum and you've kind of been through this and I, I probably see your head like nodding when I say this, sometimes all it takes is just to have an experienced set of hands in the house and, for you to bounce a few ideas off or just get a little confidence builder. Like, hey, is this normal part of motherhood? I'm feeling like this. What do you think? Or like just being able to express your feelings to another adult in the house if your partner's gone back to work or or whatever it is. Having that emotional support with a doula, second to none. Second to none. So many, so many people have said to us that was, you know, a close, very close second to the having having the meals cooked every week. So if you are in Melbourne or Hobart, Geelong, Ballerine, Newcastle, Sydney, and you are thinking, boy, that sounds really good. I I'm, you know. I'm cooking a bubba and I would really love to have someone cooking meals and doing a bit of laundry and tidying up around the house and having that emotional support from someone who is completely non-judgmental, then hit us up. We're at ifillyourcup.com and pop over to our website, have a look at some of the offerings that we've got there. And while you're there, Grab our quickie guide. It's our go to guide for the fourth trimester. So we talk about all things nutrition, balancing relationships, how are you going to get sleep for you, for your baby, some oxytocin boosters, you know, really good, quick ideas to get you prepared for life after your baby has arrived. Think about that hospital checklist that you've downloaded off Pinterest. That The quickie is your equivalent to after the baby has arrived. So without further ado, oh, I'm so excited (laughs) to tell you about this interview. Oh, my goodness. I have just chatted to an amazing woman. Her name is Associate Professor Lana McClements. She is a qualified clinical pharmacist. And she's at the Faculty of Science and Institute for Biomedical Materials and Devices. That's a long, (laughs) that's a long, that's a long department at UTS, so University of Technology, Sydney in Australia. And this woman, oh, she came across my, I'm going to say my desk because on my computer, when I read a few weeks ago about an amazing discovery that her and her team had made in conjunction with some clinicians at the Mercy Hospital in Melbourne. So Lana and her team have not only discovered two novel new biomarkers for preeclampsia, but they have developed a novel point of care diagnostic which is superior in like all ways to the current gold standard. So this test is quicker. It only takes 15 minutes, which you will hear in the interview why that is so important. Time is critical when it comes to symptoms kind of evolving in preeclampsia, not only for mama but baba as well. And so, you know, the current standard, we're looking at minimum 24 hours to get a result back. So this test is going to be so, so quick going to be able to do it in the clinician or GP's office and not only that it exceeds the accuracy of the current testing standard which is is normally in like an ELISA kind of form which is kind of a bit of a crude method that they that they do so This interview is just so good. We talk about what is preeclampsia. We talk about the symptoms that you can be looking out for, why it's so hard to diagnose, how Lana and her team, I guess, are walked down that pathway and found those two novel biomarkers, how that all came about. As you all know, if you're a long time listener, I'm a complete science nerd. And so I love to hear about those aha moments or, you know, that, that like discovery moment. And we also talk about, you know, at what point in pregnancy can you get an accurate reading? Because we talk about how preeclampsia can affect very early on and late stages and even, I did not know this, but postpartum as well. So ladies, like get your pen and paper and listen in to this one. And then finally we talk about the, I guess the realities of science and big discoveries is that it's all good and well to have those in the lab but how are we going to commercialise those discoveries and take them from bench to bedside and get those to everyone who needs the most. So I'm so thrilled to have Associate Professor Lana McClements on the podcast to talk about her amazing new point of care test for preeclampsia. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Associate Professor Lana McClements. How are you today?
1: Thank you so much, Renee. It's great to be here and thank you for
0: inviting me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Everyone knows that the point of this podcast is obviously to bridge the gap between amazing researchers like yourself and the public because as, you know, an ex-researcher myself, I totally get it. It takes like, you know, 10, 15 years sometimes for things to kind of go from bench to bedside. So I spotted an article, oof, it was it's a few weeks ago now, isn't it? The I guess couple all, of weeks. That's yeah, right. Yes. The press and everything from your amazing publication around a new diagnostic test for preeclampsia. Well done, first of all. That Thank is you so much. Bloody amazing. Um, <laughs> I did a post for it on Instagram and I was just going through a little bit of the research, and so many people were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Like, one, I'm actually going to find it now because a couple of our followers actually got quite emotional about it and um, good emotions, but it was almost like happy tears because they were saying how how amazing it would have been for them if they had this amazing diagnostic test. Because I think, as you know, so many women go through this kind of umming and ahhing. Do they have pre What, Like the symptoms are, you know, my understanding and I haven't had it, but I have had a very good friend who had it and they can be quite frightening. And the current test is something that is not as specific as what you guys have been able to carry out and your specificity is amazing i've actually got so one person's actually written this made me teary in our wow. Instagram post. Wow, that's so good. Amazing. Wow, so bloody epic. I had preeclampsia and um, HELLP in my first pregnancy and now currently 26 weeks. I'm nervous approaching the second half, but this is an amazing um, step forward. Um, this test is so going to be so beneficial. Thanks for sharing. So awesome. Oh my goodness! <laughs> the impact that you and your team is making. I just want to do like a quick. Good on you!
1: This is like thank you so much. This is why we do what we do as researchers, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> and if we can help one woman, I think we've done our job right, and yeah. that's definitely what keeps us motivated to day in and day out facing all the challenges that we do face in the lab and outside and. Uh, working really hard to to find something that will make a difference and and create that impact uh, on on women and and babies. And in particular, is just it's fantastic to hear uh, comments like this.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the beginning because I've already kind of alluded to the fact that um, preeclampsia can be quite a difficult. Um, I guess disorder to kind of diagnose. Can you describe to the listeners what is preeclampsia and I guess what are the top kind of three, four things that they should be looking for in terms of symptoms?
1: Sure, no problem. I think what is really tricky about preeclampsia is that it comes on really suddenly. Mm. And It's not always easy to diagnose because every woman could be experiencing different symptoms. So it's like an array of symptoms. What really is is important is that after the 20 weeks of gestation, this is the definition of it. But like I said, the definition is one thing. And then what actually happens in real life and and, and with pregnant women is another thing. So we, so woman is, is diagnosed with the, A new onset of hypertension, which is high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. after 20 weeks of gestation. But in conjunction with that high blood pressure, we also need another type of symptoms. So it could be protein in the urine, and it could be liver dysfunction, or it could be cerebrovascular symptoms, headaches, swelling in the feet. So it is like a range of symptoms and the definition has changed actually over the years. Initially, maybe about five five or 10 years ago, it was just new onset of hypertension uh, or high blood pressure with protein urea or sort of kidney damage. But now they've extended that to include other types of symptoms in, in addition to high blood pressure because it was so varied between the women and it could also include fetal growth restriction um as well as one of the symptoms in addition to high blood pressure but just i wanted to i want you to imagine being a pregnant uh, mother and without mm. knowing it having a serious medical condition that has no cure but could cause you and your baby to die and this is what preeclampsia is so it actually starts to develop much earlier on in pregnancy without any symptoms without any notion Uh, of knowing that, you know, you could have it. So the symptoms actually develop much later on. And in most women, in fact, they develop after 30 weeks of pregnancy. Mm. But the definition is after 20 weeks of pregnancy. So um, again, some women can develop it a lot earlier, but most cases develop actually after 30, 30 to 34 weeks of pregnancy. So really what we are trying to to do is that we're trying to uh, develop ways of identifying those women who are at high risk of developing preeclampsia much earlier in pregnancy, not to scare them that there could be something wrong with their pregnancy, but just to be able to monitor them much Closer, then we could diagnose it in time, and that that will give doctors options to treat or implement some sort of treatments. I mean, even though there is no cure for preeclampsia, if the symptoms start to sort of creep in, then we want to, we can actually implement some therapies that could potentially manage those symptoms and prevent the disease from actually getting worse.
0: Mm. So uh, just on that point though, so I guess if you were to identify it early on, we, like what kind of percentage are we talking in terms of being able to manage that? You know, are 80% of women able to manage that successfully to be able to have you know, their baby full term or like, do you know the statistics around that?
1: I think it's very hard to actually say that at the moment. It's uh, There isn't like a concrete piece of evidence that will tell us that if Mm -hmm. we do the X and Y, then we will be able to um, prevent complications. There is some evidence to show that if we can monitor women closely, then Mm -hmm. we could potentially prevent complications. There are quite a few studies which have shown that It just means that we are able to sort of react more quickly and clinicians can actually monitor these women. And sometimes women will have to be hospitalized as well for even closer monitoring than just being uh, being at home. Or Mm. they could be themselves monitoring uh, any proteins in the urine or their blood pressure at home. And they could be aware of all these symptoms because a lot of these symptoms like swelling in the feet and headache, that's just part of. It That's part, part of pregnancy, pregnancy, baby. Exactly. They're not very specific, right? So, yeah, um, oh, absolutely. It, and and a lot of women don't know about yep. this as well. So I guess it's it's because there is no cure per se, and there is no treatment that we can give women to actually cure this disease. And this is something we are also doing in my laboratory and with my team, trying to come up with a new, you know, curative treatment as well for preeclampsia. Uh, as well as preventative treatments. At the moment, there isn't such a thing. I mean, aspirin is often given to women pre-16 weeks of gestation. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's in... Those high-risk women that we can identify in the very very early stage of pregnancy, right. if they have some pre-existing conditions that just type two diabetes, or if they had some immunological uh, conditions as well, like autoimmune diseases, there there we are known that there will be a decreased risk, or if they had preeclampsia previously or in the family so they would be like really high high risk but and there there are some biomarkers that we are developing and other other groups are developing as well that could potentially identify those women at high risk earlier on in pregnancy because that's the only option giving aspirin in 16 weeks but again aspirin is very effective for one type of preeclampsia so that which is called early onset preeclampsia that happens before 34 weeks of gestation mm-hmm. uh, it's a little, it's a little bit more severe s- syndrome Perhaps, but it only affects smaller percentage of women overall. We still have problem with sort of majority of the cases that occur after 34 weeks of gestation, and they have late onset preeclampsia. Uh, oh, wow. We're still trying to understand more how we can, you know, detect it, monitor it, and, and manage it as well.
0: I did not know that there was two different types. That's very, very interesting.
1: In fact, there is a third type as well, oh, which is called okay. po- postpartum, which occurs after the baby is delivered as well, within four weeks. Oh, wow. Viruses.
0: And do they all have similar symptoms? It's just the timing of,
1: it's of based on the actual way- symptoms? That's right. So the diagnosis is based on the timing, but the symptoms could be the same, similar, but it is very varied from woman to woman. So, yeah, the blood pressure is one of the main symptoms. Um, yeah. And then it could be other, it has to be in, in conjunction with sort of kidney damage, liver damage, and potentially other organs as well.
0: Wow. Okay. I did not know that. Cause I think, you know, typically we hear about, you know, during gestation period the, you know, oh, I've got, I've got, um, you know, early signs of preeclampsia and I need to have some bed rest and, and things like that. But I was not aware that it could actually crop up Postpartum—that's very, very interesting. I feel like I yes. need to deep and dive and into that a little uh, bit more as a science nerd.
1: <laughs> very good. And in fact, you just reminded me about when you mentioned bed rest. Uh, yes. In fact, there was a—it was a big study which came out that showed that actually exercise in pregnancy can prevent preeclampsia. There we so go. Of course, that would be guided by the by the clinicians and obstetricians and people looking after you. But in general, if you're healthy and pregnancy is going well, and there is no reason for you not to do exercise. Um, there was a study recently, um, maybe a year ago, that came out mm-hmm. that showed that exercise could prevent preeclampsia. So, keeping fit and yes. exercising in pregnancy is very important.
0: There we go, ladies. You've heard it first. <laughs> keep yeah. fit. And then also, don't, I, I guess, you know, obviously not scare tactics or anything, but keep your wits about you. Things could happen post baby birth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Now, oh. let's switch gears. I want to talk about what the current testing is that we have here in Australia. And I assume that it's very similar across the world, correct me if I'm wrong, but what's, I guess, the current gold standard and then where does your test fit into all of that?
1: Yes. So, at the moment in Australia... It's mainly based on those sort of uh, pre-existing diseases. If, if a woman comes into pregnancy with some pre-existing diseases, which are uh, risk factors for uh, developing preeclampsia, such as diabetes, uh, and I guess obesity and high BMI is also associated uh, with uh, the increased risk of developing preeclampsia or autoimmune diseases, pre- history of preeclampsia, etc. And then in terms of diagnosis, mainly... Is based on symptoms, um, such so as new, like I said, new onset of high blood pressure, then protein in your urine, any other symptoms such as headaches, swelling in the feet, uh, or low platelet counts, etc. So that's mainly what we are doing at the moment. Biomarkers are not really used very much in in Australia at the moment. However, in Europe, they're quite popular. So there are two other biomarkers that are c- currently in the clinic. They're called S-FLIT and PLGF. And some of the companies, such as Perkin and Elmer and Thermo Fisher, um, they have PLGF in particular and Roche as well. They have S-split and PLGF ratio, kind of similar concept to our our biomarkers, which are also a ratio of two two biomarkers. Now, these biomarkers are very good at identifying this early onset uh, Mm preeclampsia, which which occurs before 34 weeks of gestation, but only captures 15% of the cases. They're not so good at identifying this late-onset preeclampsia, which occurs in 85% of women, and after 34 weeks of gestation. Uh, Again, different countries have different uh, guidelines how to manage this. I mean, recently, guidelines have come out by the International Society for the Study of Hypertension in Pregnancy, and they have have identified the the diagnosis and the management uh, clearly uh, they've outlined um, how um, you know pregnant women should be managed with um, not just with preeclampsia but with uh, gestational hypertension as well, which is a uh, another disorder which only uh, is based on high blood pressure without any organ damage. Mm-hmm. So they suggest that in addition to all the symptoms that are um, important to you know detect and realize uh, the biomarkers sFlt and and POGFS. So the biomarkers of angiogenic imbalance are also important to take into the account as a support to the clinical symptoms to to enable sort of more difficult diagnosis to happen when it's not so clear-cut what women is actually experiencing. Uh, Again, it it depends on the country. I think Europe uses a lot more biomarkers than we do in Australia or in America. But again, there are international guidelines that, That clinicians can follow as well
0: Mm. I feel like Europe loves a biomarker (laughs) they love a (laughs) diagnostic Um, they
1: do they do and they're doing well with that so
0: (sighs) (laughs) so so just for the listeners for those who aren't in the know with science if you can you explain what a biomarker is how would we actually see that where are we getting that from
1: sure we can't really see it. It's uh, in the blood. I mean, biomarkers can be can be detected in urine, saliva, blood, but in particular for preeclampsia, we are using blood. So we extract this part of the blood called plasma, which has all these proteins in it. So proteins that are serve many important functions in our body, in our cells, in our organs. So then we use tests to actually uh, quantify how much of that protein is in the in the in the plasma of, that comes from the blood, and then we have sort of cutoff if the concentration is above this, then there is a high risk if the concentration is below this, it's this high risk, et cetera. So we use these cutoff points to determine whether a woman is at risk or has preeclampsia or it doesn't. Mm,
0: excellent. And, I love that. <laughs>
1: and Sorry, yeah, just to, just to <laughs> it's just uh, it's just a protein that that cir- circulates in your blood mm. and could signal that something is going off. It could be in the placenta or it could be elsewhere in the body because preeclampsia is cardiovascular disease. But in a lot of the cases, placenta starts off early on with the placenta not being developed properly. Mm. So then, if we can detect these biomarkers that can reflect what's happening in the placenta or at the, at the placental level, then that's really useful because we can't go in and get a chunk of placenta. It's dangerous. It can lead to miscarriage mm. and it's not something that is sort of recommended. So if you can just like a simple blood test uh, that women normally would have anyway to monitor various different parameters can be used mm. to do that. And that's really useful and it's okay. not really uh, in- extra invasive on women
0: yeah and so you and your team were responsible for I guess discovering two new biomarkers what was it about what are they and again where I'm assuming they're in the blood what were they what's their normal I guess responsibility and I'd love to know was there something that kind of tipped you off. I always like to know about that light bulb moment or what I used to call in the lab that Hail Mary experiment where you were like, I've got this really, like I've got this inkling that it we're, it's this, like we're going down this pathway. And I'm really curious to know if there was a moment in the lab where you were like, or you read a paper, because I remember back in my PhD, there was like, This phenomenon when I was working out how these two proteins came together and I was doing a literature review and I was looking at one of the particular proteins and there was this really unique nuanced part about its structure. It had three sulfur tyrosines all together on on like this one part of the molecule and I was like that's really weird. Like (laughs) I wonder... I wonder what that was about. And so I chased that for three years.
1: (laughs) Wow.
0: I chased that idea for three years. (laughs) And it turns out that's what was actually responsible for binding to that other molecule. So I I always am so curious about how other scientists have made their discovery. Was there, did you speak to someone? Was there something that you saw at a conference? Did you read something? Did someone say something? Or did the other thing is, I mean, you look at um, what is it, Alexander Fleming, you know, with penicillin. Was there like a complete stuff up in the lab, but then there was a really cool like <laughs> result out of it?
1: <laughs> very well put. Yes. Um, so, I was working on this a protein as part of my PhD, and we were characterizing it because we discovered, um, as part of the the lab that I was in back at uh, Queen's University Belfast, that it's a very important. protein, FKBPL in particular, in uh, vasculature. So vascular development, uh, also pathological vasculature, for example, in cancer. And in fact, my work started by working on the development of this uh, peptide that is based on the FKBPL protein and characterizing it as a new treatment for cancer, for solid cancers, ovarian cancer, because it was able to cut off the blood supply around the cancer's and uh, prevent tumor growth in that way. And then that uh, peptide that is based on this FKPL protein um, has been developed by the company ALMAC back in Northern Ireland, and they have now finished the phase one clinical trials and the the drug has received approval as an orphan drug by the FDA in America as well. So that was very exciting. But then when I moved on to become sort of an independent investigator on my own, since I spent so much time uh, researching this uh, protein and I got into the preeclampsia field and pregnancy field, I realized that a lot of molecular circuitries that are identified in cancer are also applicable to pregnancy and placenta and and preeclampsia as well. And nobody by that point had looked at the role of FQPL in preeclampsia, and we all know that vascular dysfunction, uh, it's very well known that in preeclampsia that can sort of be the cause and that can happen before preeclampsia develops. So I sort of uh, was um, able to come up with, with the idea to test this uh, protein in, and CD44 is its target protein. So we know that FKPL to CD44 and CD44 is also known to have a role in vasculature. Angiogenesis is the, the actual term that we use in science. So then I went ahead and in collaboration with some uh, clinicians and their clinical samples, I was able to actually measure this in, in the, in the blood. And then slowly, slowly over time, we were able to keep validating it and showing that it has a role, that it can be used as a biomarker, not just FKDPL, but in conjunction with uh, its target protein CD44 as a, as a ratio. And it's completely independent or different to uh, what's already in the clinic. The, the two biomarkers that I mentioned, S split and PLGF, they're part of the different sort of pathway. So by our biomarkers can actually add to the and improve the diagnosis because they're looking at another another pathway and another mechanism. So we all know that in in, in my in my field we all know that preeclampsia is a multifactorial disease, that it doesn't just and it presents very differently in different women. So having some sort of extra or a panel of biomarkers to be able to measure it in women, we could increase that sensitivity and and, and identify women who are developing it even though that we're not so sure whether they are or not.
0: Mm, another tool in the toolkit. I love that because you just never know where you're going to end up. That's fascinating. I love that. I, I remember my supervisor saying to me, you know, go to all the conferences that you need to go to that are on your subject matter but make sure that you go to at least one conference which is dissimilar you know to your subject because there's probably something there that is related to you but you just don't know yet and that's where I feel like this multidisciplinary kind of ideas are the springboard for amazing discoveries because like you said when you're looking at cancer over here and like without sounding too crass you know it is very similar to pregnancy if you think about it because you're growing (laughs) this whole new human being and your body is kind of you know for those who You know, aren't in the know with science, but you know, when you have a foreign, foreign body, let's call it bacteria, virus, whatever it is in your body, your body is constantly surveying, going, Is this me? Yes. Is this me? Yes. Is this me? No. Okay. Attack. Immune system comes in. And so when we start growing a baby, our bodies have to kind of switch gear and go, don't attack the baby, you know, That's which is exactly very right. similar to what happens in cancer because our body, but there's like, you know, there's a whole lot of podcasts around how we could tackle like cancer in the body and things like that. But it's, you know, the fact that cancer is able to grow in our body, obviously our surveillance systems go down on a whole lot of other pathways, but it is very similar. So that is very, very clever. I yes, love the I fact mean, I mean that's crossed
1: it, over yes in pregnancy we want to stimulate uh, you know baby to grow and present it to grow and to feed the baby and in cancer we want to do the opposite right
0: yeah so
1: I mean that's that's kind of perhaps where the similarities go but just in the opposite direction yeah but another thing I wanted to mention as well and as part of this discovery was that when we try to do to knock out this particular protein and gene FQPL in mice Mm. to see what actually, what role it has in the, in the body and in sort of developmental developmental vasculature, we actually couldn't do it because we couldn't knock out completely. And and you're familiar with science, you know that we Mm. do these experiments all the time. We knock Mm. out particular gene protein and, and you know, mice can survive and go on normal or they show some sort of dysfunction yeah but our mice couldn't actually they couldn't form at all in embryos couldn't form when they had wow. both KBPL alleles knocked knocked down knocked out we could do one allele so half of uh, half a knockdown but knockout was embryonically lethal and that made me think well this protein must have a really critical role in pregnancy mm-hmm. if we if it's definitely needed for embryos to develop fully or yeah to develop absolutely
0: wow that's yeah that's a big red flag yes <laughs> definitely so your new test explain to us what that kind of looks like now so it's called a point of care test is it similar to I don't want to say the c word but it's similar to a COVID (laughs) test you know is that what we're looking at like in in you know if I was to touch and feel this thing what what are the steps for you know someone to be able to to test whether they've got preeclampsia.
1: The technology was developed by my colleague, Professor Deon Jing at UTS, and it's a UTS technology. You're absolutely right. It is like a COVID test. It is like an antigen rapid test. It looks exactly the same. The difference is, is that we need sort of a special detector mm-hmm. to be able to excite these nanoparticles that are bound to these antibodies that will detect the proteins that we want and biomarkers that we want. Mm-hmm. So actually, the detection part of it is a little different. So because we want to quantify the amount of these proteins or biomarkers in the blood, we need to be able to define their concentration, whereas right. in, in COVID, is sort of yes, no type of right. thing. yeah. So that if that's the difference and the detection, the detection of it requires like a laser beam at 980 uh, nanometers. Mm -hmm. So what we are thinking about, if this was to go ahead and and get commercialized and and enrich the market is that is something that will be potentially in the doctor's office Mm -hmm. uh, or in the clinic. So that will allow those immediate clinical decisions. And there is definitely a benefit in that when a woman is in front of you and the clinician midwife or, or a obstetrician is examining the, the, the woman and without waiting 24 hours for the results to come in mm-hmm. by sending the blood into the laboratory and doing this test in the laboratory, they can actually see the result. Right there, there and then, and make immediate clinical decision. And obviously, that will could those twenty four hours could be critical as well in the way that the the pre-eclampsia will develop or complications will arise, etc. Again, so this is where, where we see it happening, and it's not the difference between COVID and uh, COVID test and preeclampsia is that. We don't want women to make that decision and to have that stress to have diagnosed themselves with a condition because it's quite complex. It's not so simple, yes and no, Uh, and it's very multifactorial, like I said. So it's something that we expect clinicians to do, and it will enable those uh, immediate clinical decisions. And as we know, pregnancy is a very sensitive time. You know, women are quite anxious throughout pregnancy, making sure the baby is okay, and we don't want that extra pressure on them. Yeah, but it's absolutely. always good to be aware of the symptoms and to be aware of what's happening. And if they're testing their urine, they notice any protein, or if the blood pressure goes up, or any other symptoms, it's very important for them to kind of be aware of those things and then contact their uh, clinical team.
0: Mm. And I think, you know, as you said, the level of immediacy is critical in in some of those instances, and yes. even let's say, you know, you go into the doctors and you get that blood sent away now, just that 24 hours, and that's a minimum, you know, 24 hours that you're waiting. That is so much stress and anxiety. I remember I had a little bit of a scare during my pregnancy and I had to wait, I think it was like 12 hours to see my obstetrician. And I was like, that was the longest, worst 12 hours of my life. You know, you're just yes. like sitting at home going, oh my goodness, <laughs> is everything okay? So, absolutely. I also read in your paper that, in terms of the improvements on the testing, so your level of sensitivity. So is, so the the regular kind of testing is around 73 percent for seven sensitivity, and yours is bounced to 90.5 percent, and your specificity was raised from 92 to 100 percent, which is crazy good.
1: Yes, okay. no, I think that's that's really exciting, and this is using different methods, but I'm detecting the same biomarkers. So it's not, right, uh, right. No, it's it's using ELISA method, which is a typical hospital me- method to detect biomarkers, but it's related to these two particular biomarkers that we are working on: FKHL gotcha. and CD forty four. So when we measure them uh, using ELISA. Um, which is the, the laboratory-based uh test that takes 24 hours generally mm-hmm. to, to report. The sensitivity was actually lower than our 15-minute point of care test. Because you would imagine with the point of care that you, you would generally be potentially less sensitive. The advantage is it's rapid, it's quick, it gives you the, the results. If you even if you think about COVID, when you go to do your PCR test, yeah, you have a lot a lot higher chance of being accurately diagnosed than if you do your at-home test, which not always works. But so with us, it's kind of the opposite, which is really exciting, that the Mm. point of care test not only is quick, it's easy, convenient, cheap, but it's also more accurate. And that's the that's the platform that was developed at UTS.
0: That's amazing.
1: Based on these highly sensitive, highly doped, we call them doped, but which means excitable (laughs) nanoparticles. (laughs) Uh, that, give, that can detect um, like small, lowly uh, secreted proteins in the blood with high accuracy.
0: That's amazing. And I, I know I got a question from one of our social media followers and she was asking, she was like, at what point could a woman be tested and get an accurate result? with yours? how I guess, how early did you test in your
1: trials? That's a great question, actually. So what we did in this particular paper, we were testing samples that we knew uh, women had preeclampsia already. So these are women who were symptomatic, they were already they were already diagnosed with early onset preeclampsia in particular. So we just wanted to see that our biomarkers would be reliable in in those particular samples. But previously we published in an, another paper in twenty twenty one in Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, which is the first paper where we described these biomarkers as potential predictive and diagnostic biomarkers. And in that paper, we actually measured the level of biomarkers using this old-fashioned ELISA method that is laboratory-based at 20 weeks of gestation. And these women actually were asymptomatic. They didn't have Mm -hmm. any symptoms. They were perfectly healthy at that point in time. But later on, they developed some of them, they they developed preeclampsia and some of them were continued to be healthy uh, in pregnancy. So we think, we believe that we could potentially uh, use this test 20 weeks of gestation so halfway through the pregnancy, to identify potentially those women that are at risk of developing preeclampsia later on, Mm -hmm. and that that, that they would require some closer monitoring uh, of the symptoms and potentially of the baby as well. And then towards the 30 weeks of gestation, when most cases get diagnosed, then we could potentially, by continuous monitoring and continuously detecting those biomarkers in the blood, uh, identify those that then develop preeclampsia, so we call it evolving evolving preeclampsia 20 yep. weeks, and then actual established preeclampsia uh, once the symptoms kick in.
0: Mm. Uh, do do we know? I guess, and I think you may have alluded to this at the beginning of our chat, the fact that you know things are already happening, but we just can't see what's going on in terms of like um, the integrity of the placenta, and you know, obviously symptoms. Do we know how early those can actually start? Uh, is it much earlier than that kind of 20-week cutoff or, yeah, yes. do we know it all?
1: Yes. I mean, there, there are some, again, the, the pathogenesis and how it, and the causes of preeclampsia are not very well known, but what we do know is that even early on in, in pregnancy, sort of in the first trimester, mm. the, the way that the placenta develops by the fetal cells that come invade maternal vasculature to develop this placenta that that process could be actually not happening correctly and could lead to preeclampsia as well
0: right
1: they could be happening sort of in the first trimester very early on from week 10 9 10 11 uh, and then onwards as well we 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 hope we we've tested uh, our biomarkers at 15 weeks mm-hmm. in one sample cohort, and whilst FKPL was showing that difference, CD44 wasn't. So the ratio didn't work as well at 15 weeks as it did at at 20 weeks. And the reason why we wanted to do it at 15 weeks is that it could if we identify those women at 15 weeks, then we could give them aspirin because aspirin has to be given before 16 weeks. So, we are still trying to see whether we can push it push it back to fifteen weeks, yeah, as well in, in using different sort of cohorts of patients. And it's certainly on our mind. but uh, twenty weeks is sort of that sweet spot when we when we found that it works quite well okay. um, in identifying. But l- like I said, even it's just to monitor these women closely and to be aware of these women who could be high risk.
0: Can I ask what why do you, why do you have to give the aspirin before sixteen weeks?
1: It's just a lot of evidence and research that shows that if it's not given before sixteen weeks, it's not as effective.
0: Oh, okay. Yes. All right then. And so it's ongoing. Like once you start,
1: like once that's... a day. That's right. Yes. Gotcha. But that's the only, the only sort of, uh, I guess, preventative therapy that's uh, being used at the moment. But like I said, it's not one hundred percent effective, particularly not in late onset preeclampsia.
0: Okay. The, the, I think the million or billion dollar question, Lana. <laughs> We spoke about this briefly, <laughs> briefly offline. When do we expect something like this amazing piece of tech to actually make it to the bedside, the clinic, our GP? Are you obviously like, you know, you're part of a university and they've always got their feelers out for commercialising amazing technology like this. Can I ask do you have any interested parties? Are you going to license this out? When are we going to see this? Because I know, I mean, based off the social media comments, people are ready to rock and roll. <laughs> I know people are going to be paying for this. So yes. uh, can I ask, where are you at? What What are the plans?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that's a great question. And that's, again, what drives us as well in our research. We want to see that translation, not just, you know, lab-based, research-based work that we do, but we want to see it progress. Progress and then get into the hands of those that need it the most. Uh, unfortunately, we can't do it straight out of university, because mm-hmm. the whole the, to develop a product that is marketable and ready for the market, uh, we require industry partners, and the industry has to come along and help us with that. We are not equipped for that kind of work. So this is why the pharmaceutical industry or the biotech industry is so critical in Mm -hmm. taking these, um, you know, products or these ideas from research stage into the production stage and validation stage and sort of. And the process is very expensive and very uh, lengthy as well. (laughs) So it it requires a lot of investment. I mean, just to maintain the patent, but not just that, but to actually Develop a product that is going to be consistently performing well and you know stable and and ready Mm. for the market and packaging also is another aspect of it. So we are speaking to um, a couple of uh, companies. So there is a platform that um, is developed by UTS and then biomarkers that I developed before I joined UTS. So. There are companies that we are speaking to, and if we hopefully this progresses and they take on the biomarkers, then they could adapt it to any platform really, or they could use this really good platform, which is highly sensitive and Mm. and um, really good. So again, it takes with diagnostics is a little bit quicker than with the treatments. Treatments take a lot longer, actually, to be um, approved and then used by the by the people uh, that need it. But diagnostics with Some with some luck, and if we if if we kind of progress this uh, into commercialization stage, and industry the right industry partner comes along, then we could be doing it. This could be sort of in the market in two to three years, if I'm being optimistic, and then five, if I'm being less optimistic. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, no, no, no. That I think it's really important to kind of talk about the realities of scientific discoveries because unless you've been part of it, I, I think. We see these sound bites on, you know, Channel 9 and Channel 7 and everything and everyone's like, woo, you know, let's go to the doctors tomorrow and get that. It's like,
1: "Mm." you know. Not quite that easy. Yeah.
0: And as you kind of said, you know, for treatments, it's 10 to 15 years, it's a billion dollars, someone's got to fund it, someone's got to be the champion of the project and then it's got to go through a ton of trials and regulatory processes and that takes time. Exactly.
1: And every country has different regulatory rules as well. So some countries require 2,000, 3,000 samples to be tested, whereas other countries require a few hundred, and then if they're safe. uh, And it depends on the level uh, of the device that you're developing as well. Sort of how, you know, what is the risk that if you don't get it right, uh, sort of, but because we are suggesting sort of closer monitoring rather than, uh, you know, Treatment, treatment, treatment implementation thereafter. then it's, yeah. it's likely less risky than that you mm. know it could it could cause harm but it's it's it can m- mostly be benefic- beneficial
0: yeah that's a really good point okay and before we jump into our quick rapid fire and don't panic.
1: What is that? <laughs>
0: She's like, "Oh my god, I didn't sign up for that." Uh, no, no, no. It's um it's it's only three questions and um don't worry, I will be kind. I'm ready. <laughs> They're the same questions that I ask everyone, but um I always like to ask researchers what have you got planned what else is coming out of your lab is there something else exciting or be you know confidentiality is you know front and center is there anything that you can share with us are you hunting for new biomarkers or are you because i think the other thing that i wanted to touch on is that i read in your bio that you're that you've designed an innovative 3d multicellular models of early placenta and women's heart disease for high throughput screening of biomarkers and therapeutics, is that the platform you were just talking about? Um, or
1: something platform, different. So this is this is different. This is um, we I sort of we've got quite a few projects in the lab which are mm. all mainly focused on preeclampsia or even sort of the the cardiovascular health of women after preeclampsia in pregnancy. It's something we haven't t- we haven't touched on. Is that preeclampsia is not only dangerous during pregnancy but mm. After pregnancy, it, women and the offspring who were affected by preeclampsia in pregnancy have increased risk of cardiovascular and metabolic disease and neurological disease as well. So in particular, cardiovascular disease, they have two Two hundred percent increased risk of developing hypertension, but also other types of ischemic heart disease, heart attacks, and and two out of three of them would potentially die prematurely of cardiovascular disease. Mm. So it's not just that we need to monitor, uh, you know, these women and these individuals that are affected by preeclampsia in pregnancy, but after pre- preeclampsia as well. They we have to monitor them and potentially implement some treatments to prevent cardiovascular diseases and metabolic diseases from occurring. So this is another work, another piece of work that we are doing in collaboration with St George's Hospital. They have a fantastic clinical uh, trial that they're running where they're following women uh, two years, I believe, five years, and then and and then six months, um, two years, and then five years after they've had preeclampsy in pregnancy or gestational hypertension, or they they had healthy controls as well uh healthy pregnancies so we are actually working with them and trying to understand again to identify biomarkers that could um, then tell us oh this woman potentially is at risk of developing cardiovascular disease because of pre- of, of, pre- of pre- and pregnancy mm. well again we can go in and get a chunk of heart right <laughs> it's yeah, not right we yeah. can do regularly yeah. so again <laughs> we have to rely on the blood sample, and we're trying to recreate some of the heart cells using that blood sample in a dish, <clears throat> and then test some of the treatments and identify some of the biomarkers that we could detect in the blood as well, and then that will give us better understanding of these women or individuals who have had preeclampsia and uh, a risk of cardiovascular disease, and they're not really being managed. We just let them go home, pregnancy is all done. Yeah. Maybe it's healthy and well. But then these women have this increased risk and we've got to manage them as well as part of the women's health post-pregnancy. So that's one side. And then the, the 3D, the placental uh, work that you mentioned, we are doing this work um, using a platform from a company uh, called Inventia Life Sciences. Mm-hmm. They have a bio 3D bioprinting company. And we've come up, uh, particularly one of my PhD students who is super talented, Claire Richards. She has developed this model um, using that 3D bioprinter where we use the first trimester trophoblast cells, which are the fetal cells that are responsible for developing uh, placenta and and remodeling mother's uh, uterus to actually develop, accommodate placenta. We are bioprinting them and then looking at exposing them to various stimuli that we think are important in preeclampsia and then also adding some treatments to see whether we can counteract placenta being developed well or not so well, depending on this this environment. So this is what we are doing as well um, in terms of developing treatments. And one more thing is that I'm actually really passionate about as well is using the stem cell derived extracellular vesicles as a new treatment for preeclampsia. This is something also novel that is emerging and it's developing rapidly. These stem cells called mesenchymal stem cells are used widely and in the clinic and in humans for other cardiovascular conditions. But for preeclampsia, there is, there is some work in the preclinical settings using animal models and 3D models as well. So these, if we can just get rid of the cells and just use their cargo that they're secreting that is full mm. of goodness, then mm. that will be really good as well if we can develop this new treatment that potentially can cure the disease and prevent future cardiovascular and metabolic complications post pregnancy.
0: Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> <But> we're busy. <laughs> Very busy. I love this. This is the, this is pretty much the only time that I get that itch of like, oof, I would love to be back in the lab again. Um but again, um I think the trauma of um writing grants
1: and yes. papers um bringing things to reality. <laughs> <laughs> exactly you're right to do this kind of research we need funding and and yeah it's, it's quite expensive so we are and, and funding is um quite scarce at the moment unfortunately mm. so um we we are trying with we're, we're sort of um working together to uh, to kind of in the multidisciplinary fields to help each other and we feel very passionate about what we do so um if we could have more funding i think things will be developing even faster and, and we'll be you know progressing and improving people's lives even more
0: absolutely um I know the budget was handed down last night and I haven't looked at anything yet but I don't know is, is there gonna be some more money for research I'm I'm not too sure what's going I really on hope there. so <laughs> I really hope so too because I mean I left I left almost 10 years ago um actually 10 years ago this year I left research and it was horrific in terms of the success rate for grants then and I know it's still very low since so um fingers crossed we get a little bit of a push from government for some funding we're going to finish off with our rapid fire are you ready yes
1: (laughs) as ready as it can be
0: (laughs) don't be scared it's okay um what would be your top tip for mothers to be if they feel like they're kind of maybe in this kind of arena of preeclampsia?
1: So I think timing is very important and reacting quickly is very important as well and I know that it depends on the personality. Some women are more relaxed, some women are more kind of worried about every single thing so it's it's understandable that that plays a role but certainly if you're unsure about something and if you feel that you're developing any of the symptoms that you can see on preeclampsia foundation website or you can get information from your from your doctor or from your cl- clinical team. Contact them immediately. So contact mm-hmm. them, uh, voice them and um, sort of um, get get that uh, check done as soon as possible.
0: I feel like you've already answered my second one, which is your go-to resource, whether it be a book, a workshop, a website for birthing mothers. Is that where you would direct people to go, the Preeclampsia Foundation?
1: So there there, there are um, a number of um, preeclampsia sort of uh, foundations and charity in Australia. We have the Preeclampsia Foundation, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's it's also a foundation, but the preclampsy foundation by itself is kind of international and it's more right. based in America. And th- there are some good resources on online, um, but again, stick to org ones and the ones <laughs> that are sort of. Um, Do clinic, not slip down the bet- Google rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, vetted. and also Mayo Mayo Clinic al- always has good uh, reliable resources as well. Yeah, amazing. Art Foundation, which is um, which actually funds my some of my work as well around FKPL's role in preeclampsia, they 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 have some good resources as well.
0: Okay, that's a good one to have. And our final question is always we've nicked this one from Brene Brown. Are you aware? Do you know Brene Brown? She's she's yes. American. <laughs> um, what do you keep on your bedside table?
1: Oh, nice one. So I, I'm just looking at, uh, and thinking, <laughs> at looking at it and thinking, um, I've got my goals, uh, which I have laminated for this year. So I've written out my goals. Oh, I love that. No uh,
0: one has ever said
1: that. Okay. <laughs> I'm very much into that. And yes. I, I understand the importance of writing them down. So I've written them down, laminated them. So they're there. I also have my lovely candle. I've got, got a picture it. with my mom uh, and my daughter. And I also have a book so that I'm reading uh, at the moment. And I also love that. So I love inspirational books and books about sort of, uh, you know, being a good leader and, and uh, biography books as well. So I try and, and keep up with those.
0: Do you, ca- can you share some of your favourite books? Uh, like, can you share a favourite biography and a favourite, like, leadership book?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I, I um, definitely, my favourite one is the one by Margaret Thatcher. Okay, So that was quite uh, inspirational as well. She was an interesting leader. Yes,
0: my mother used to call me Little Thatcher when I was when I was like six. I think yes. <laughs> she was like, "One day you're going to rule the world, kid."
1: <laughs> but I also love. Um, I'm just going to bring it bring it over the yes. book. So don't get the the title wrong. One second. Y- yeah, of course. So I also like inspirational and motivational books and some sort of and spiritual ones as well. So the boy, the the mole, the fox, and the horse. Oh is, yes, I love that one. It's definitely it's definitely great to just read every night, really. And then one of my favorite favorite ones is the monk who sold his Ferrari.
0: <laughs> the monk who sold his Ferrari. Okay, I'm putting them on the list. I'm I'm Good. trying to read by Robin read Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to read more. Okay, I'm going to put those on the list. I like those. Um, I think we,
1: we just work really hard uh, these days and it's very important to have that work-life balance, self-care, sort of um, look after our health and we have a lot of competing demands with the family and uh, yep. the, the, the household and the work, which is very demanding at times. So I try and kind of, you know, keep keep working on my inner self as well
0: (laughs) Mm, I love that I've started to do I've tried to um start reading more but my two no my three things that I'm doing this year are journaling because I finally said to myself in terms of goals I'm journaling at least two times a week and I've just discovered infrared sauna which I'm in Hobart, Lana, so it is oh. cold as ass Yes, imagine.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, um, being a Melbourne girl was cold enough and then moving to Hobart, I was like, okay, this is the next level of like Arctic. Um,
1: but yes, You're still it, in Australia though. I'm still in Australia, but I don't know,
0: just coming <laughs> over that Bass straight is like a few degrees, it's... <laughs> There's snow on the mountain today, which is amazing. Oh, beautiful. Yes, infrared sauna. The infrared sauna is like my go-to. I'll try that one. I must try it. Amazing.
1: Yes, it is.
0: (laughs) Look, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. As I said. Pleasure. When I posted about those results from your publication, people were just amazed, emotional, and I think very excited to see this discovery make it to the clinic so you have us all as your little cheerleaders behind you and please pass on to your entire team that the work that you are doing I know you know this but like when I feel like when other people tell you this it just is a little bit different but you are doing amazing work and we're just so incredibly proud to have I think not only scientists in Australia doing it but a female scientist. like Thank you so you, much.
1: <laughs> and I'm really, really grateful for that. I mean, I, I do. The, one of the main uh, sort of scientists who actually did this work in the lab is called Sahar Gorbampur. And she's also a female scientist and very talented, very dedicated, hardworking. And in collaboration with Dr. Shuhwei Wen, They did this fantastic work uh, and developed this product. So I'm very fortunate to have people like Saha and Claire in my lab who are dedicated to the cause, very determined, hardworking and proactive. So uh, I think we can not do it by ourselves and we need a good team.
0: No, it doesn't matter whether it's motherhood or amazing discoveries. Everyone needs a village. 100%. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, then, till next time. Thank you so much, Renee. Bye. All the best. Bye bye.